Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. This episode features my conversation with longtime sports journalist, Morgan Campbell. After spending most of his career on the sports beat and feature writing for the Toronto Star, Morgan made the move to CBC and the broadcast media business. Morgan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So getting to kind of what we wanted to chat with you about today, about tons, decades of experience in the sports business, the media business, uh, all sides of it, really. Um, but to start out with, and this is going back a ways, and I think I have a couple of years on you. You're, you're a couple of years younger than me. I'm 44. You're, couple, you're three years younger than me? Okay. All right. So you're you're a former NCAA athlete. Yeah, sort of. If you use a broad definition of the term, I was a bench warmer on the team at Northwestern. Yep. You were on the roster, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Got my scout team minutes in, you know, dress up on game day and just stand there on the sideline holding my helmet, looking pretty. Hey, man, there's lots of Canadians who would love to have sat on the bench <laughs> at a, you know, at a, at, a, at a huge conference like you were a part of. My favorite, my favorite parts were like Saturdays uh, warming up for home games because I was a wide receiver. And sometimes like during the warmups, you'd run routes or whatever, and they throw you the ball and like you'd catch it right in front of the student sections and, and your friends would be there and they'd be cheering for you. Like for me, that's the most cheering I was ever going to get, right? Make my friends happy right before the game. In, uh, in basketball, you call that layup line shine. But uh, yeah, that was my specialty. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to be the one to take any of that away from you. I, I got a chance. I got a chance to, to attend a game of one of your, your rivals there up at uh, Wisconsin, the Badgers. Oh, man. And, and uh, I got a chance to see Ron Dane play, and, uh, and okay, it was nice. so that's that was my era, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I was I was I was making sure I had the the, the names and the dates right before we got it. So looking back on that that era, and you know, thinking about today, and thinking about how the business of sports and media is really different, just just twenty years mm-hmm. later. You know, the NCAA has had these rules around players not being able to, uh, or athletes not being able to monetize their name, their image, their likeness. We've already seen at this point some states who have stricken that down, and I'm assuming this will this will play out over time where it, it'll it, the NCAA will not be able to govern the ability of an athlete no. to actually control their own destiny. And schools so, are already preparing for that. How do you think? The, the impact of that is gonna is gonna change um, you know change the game. I'm gonna ask you kind of a broad question, then I'll I'll try and narrow it down based on your, your first line thoughts on that. Uh, it won't, for a lot of reasons. One, if if you're not cutting the players in directly on um, the revenue they generate, all these other workarounds and third parties uh, just go to maintain the status quo. So, for example, I was just reading a story this morning about. It was in, it was, you read sport. I, I don't know if you pronounce it sportico or sportico. I guess it depends on if you live on yeah, the east coast yeah, or the a west global, coast. A global population. I'm sorry, a global <laughs> uh, publication. Yeah, but they and one of the one of their articles this morning was about how these name, image, and likeness discussions how they're taking shape at these different schools. And what's happening already, and you can see what's happening, is that schools that have money are paying third parties now. They're paying consultants to teach them how to implement this name, image, and likeness uh, stuff amongst their student athletes. So there is money available. The students still aren't getting paid, but some other company now uh, gets to bill the athletic department for their consulting services. And so for the student athletes, uh, they don't get paid to play. They don't get paid in proportion to the revenue they generate. And the whole deal that they're being offered is uh, Thanks to the platform you 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 gain by playing for our school, you can now monetize that. Except monetizing that platform is a whole different job, right? This is on top of your schoolwork, on top of um, your practice schedule. So what are your choices? Like you can hire an agent, but then we need a whole a whole new set of rules around who can hire what kind of agent for what. Or you can go with the agent, maybe, and this is still in its infancy, like maybe you can go with the agency that your school has retained to consult them on this stuff. Um, but the, the, it still always depends on um, the player kind of taking on an extra res- layer of responsibility. And then the player not getting compensated for their effort, but maybe finding a way to monetize the exposure that comes with 
landing on one of these teams or getting recruited by one of these teams. So you're still going to wind up with a situation where the people who make most of the money are not the players. They're, they're going to be consultants um, and agents. And um, you're also going to wind up with, in terms of uh, recruiting, um, the, this, I was going to say the companies, but that's how they function. But the, the programs with the most money are still going to wind up with the best players. And the programs most willing to spend money uh, on everything but player salary are still going to um, are still going to uh, uh, corner that market. Because if my goal is to grow my platform, my Instagram following, my TikTok, TikTok following to the point where it is actually worth money to me, then I'm probably a lot better off at Alabama or Clemson because they're on TV every weekend than I am at like a smaller FBS school than I am in uh, uh, um, South Alabama or someplace like that. And so I think it's going to wind up just being billed as something that, that makes college sports more egalitarian, but it really winds up uh, further um, encoding like this, this, this class structure that we're seeing. And I'm trying to see it play out in my mind of how this might you know, look a little different where maybe in football. Well, think about it this way, because here's where they overlap. Remember um, the scandal a couple of years back where, where Aunt Becky from, from Full House and these other celebrities were paying admissions officials to get their kids into these schools? Um, oh, yeah. Now, now they're in jail. They're, they're still, right. well, I wouldn't really call, well, call it like summer camp with guards. But, right. Yeah. But one of the ways they would try to get them in was – as like walk-on athletes. So I'm the rowing coach. You know, I have my however many scholarships, let's say it's 10, but then I have two more people that I'm going to get onto the team. I'm not paying for them, but I want them on the team. So I give admissions the signal, hey, let these two in. So this is how some of Aunt Becky's kids got in. But one of the hustles they were running was that they were paying admissions officials. They're bribing admissions officials at USC to get Aunt Becky's kid into University of Southern California because they thought being at USC would uh, would enhance her career as a social media influencer, right? So she gets to USC, instead of being at home, she's at USC uh, posting on Instagram about how awesome everything is and, and, and putting up these sponsored posts by whoever her various sponsors are. Now, um, they paid for the privilege of doing that when in reality, you look at the right influencer's profile there are people in school already where the school is paying them because the school can pay whoever they want to, 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 to advertise the school, to market the school, where the school is letting influencers in. And so like to bribe an admissions official to let, to, to let you into the school to enhance your influencing career gets everything backwards because if you're that big of an influencer and the school wants to seem a lot cooler amongst young people, the school will pay you to post. And so you think about the influencers that are already doing this, but if you are, if you rewind a couple of years and you're Zion Williamson, you're a high school superstar and you come into college with 1.7 million Instagram followers or however many he had, like that following's worth money. And Duke University can pay him to, to post about how much he loves Duke University, to post from the library, to post from wherever. Um, and so these new- double standard. I mean, the, the, the double standard is yes. kind of changed. It's, well, it's changed over time, I think, because- you know, the, the situation like with Aunt Becky, I mean, may, maybe that worked, you know, in the in the 80s or the 90s or 15 years ago. But with, with the power of social and distribution, right. like you said, whether TikTok and Instagram, it's a different world. But they're getting advice that's just stale. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Which is how you wind up bribing officials and how you wind up uh, in club fed instead of just you going to the school and saying, hey, I have two million Instagram followers. I want to go to your school. Can you get me in? what they're going to find out eventually when, you know, name image and likeness come, comes to be, and it's okay for, you know, uh, the 20 year old Morgan Campbell to go and uh, get, get a bench, <laughs> a bench sponsorship, right. Because that's where the camera is going to find you. But what they're going to find out is that it's really hard. It's really hard to sell. Um, and, and there's only a few big players like, like Learfield, you know, Learfield is a huge player in like college sports and, and they're, they're going to buy out all the rights anyways and deal with the biggest sponsors and biggest broadcasters. And it, it as an individual, you just can't, you can't scale that. Well, also when you think about every category that every athlete you can think of has sponsorships in and 
those categories are already spoken for at the university level, right? So if like my alma mater, Northwestern, say Northwestern lands some five-star recruit, like that's not really where we recruit in football, but let's just play along. They land a five-star recruit. Uh, can that person now sign a deal with Nike? No, because Northwestern's apparel deal is with Under Armour. Um, can he sign a deal with uh, 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 TD? No, because BMO sponsors Northwestern. Like BMO has a huge presence in Chicago. And so what has never been made clear is like how much latitude these athletes are actually going to have uh, to, to negotiate um, sponsorships, given that all these sponsorship categories are already spoken for for, the, for their schools. Yeah, you have an example in sports like LeBron, and you know, I haven't checked today, so we we can go back and look. But LeBron wouldn't be wearing his Lakers jersey or Lakers anything on his on his social accounts because he doesn't want to be governed by the using using the NBA marks, using NBA and league and team sponsors. Right. So it's a common right. thing. And, and he's and, also LeBron James. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's not he's not like the rank and file college football recruit, right? So for most people, like I nothing is going to change because most people aren't famous enough to go get sponsors in that sense. All right. Well, that, that, that helps us really understand what what will likely happen, which is a lot of the same, which is unfortunate. But in the in the meantime, you know, it makes a lot of headlines in, in your business and, and look at lo- looking at your business. So you've uh, you continue to have have a great run. You, know, you made your way up in the newspaper business over the last couple of decades, mostly mostly in sports. What I wanted to get to with you today was to understand how uh, the role of the job of a sports reporter has changed, you know, kind of from when you maybe back 10, 15 years ago when, when you were really in the in the thick of things uh, back to you know a year ago when, um, when you kind of wrapped up your time in, in newsprint. And then we'll, we'll we'll make our way to, to broadcast a little later in our conversation. Well, industry wide, I think. And I talk about this all the time, like the, the middle class is shrinking um, and you have uh, more and more opportunities and money accruing to um, a small number of kind of superstars, um, whether those are like your big columnists, like your, 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 your Bruce Arthur's or your Stephen Brent's, or they're like your superstar news breaking reporters like uh, Adrian Wojnarowski or Shams Charania, people like that that cover the NBA and they break stories, Adam Schefter in the NFL. Um, and then there's also space for you if you're uh, young and eager and willing to work cheap. Um, but in the middle, like the mid-career professional who's just really good at his or her job, uh, it's tough, especially like on on the print newspaper side, on the traditional daily newspaper side, because budgets are under pressure. Um, and the easiest way to shrink the budget is to shrink payroll. And one of the ways to shrink pay- payroll is to, um, you know, buy people out. Uh, and also just to scale back on what you're covering. So where, um, and this is before the pandemic, where 10, 10, 12 years ago, if you're covering baseball, it was given, guaranteed that you're going to do your four or six weeks or how, however you and your colleagues staggered it at, at spring training. Um, and that between you and whoever else was on the beat, you were going to go to all 82 road games and then you were going to cover the playoffs. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore. And so on the one hand, if you're in a daily newspaper, you have the budget to do less and less and less because you can't be at all the places. Um, so you kind of have to depend on the phone. You, you, you kind of have to depend on luck and you just wind up covering a lot of stuff off of TV, which is not ideal. But at the same time, um, the audience's appetite has grown because they can get their updates three and four times a day. Now they can mainline this stuff instead of waiting for the newspaper to hit their porch every morning. And so (laughs) there is a greater demand for information, but uh, less access to it, which um, I know for me, like at the tail end of my newspaper career, was just frustrating Um, because I didn't particularly enjoy covering games off of television um, you know, unless it, it's different, like even now, sometimes I'll freelance for the New York Times and I'll wind up writing, like watching like fights on TV and writing about them. But I will also have written a bunch of stuff before the fight that actually involved reporting, um, which is a very different feeling from, hey, turn on the Raptors game tonight and uh, write 10 things and, and, and 
try to make viewers happy when like the the things I'm writing, the whole point about being a sports reporter and, and just from the standpoint of a beat reporter is to take readers to places where the TV can't take them with it and, and get them insight that they can't get just from uh, watching a game on TV. But if I'm watching the game on TV and you're watching the game on TV, I don't have a lot more uh, to add anymore. Um, and so that's, and this is again, all before the pandemic hit. And I think the pandemic has forced everyone to learn how to interview via Zoom and have these press conferences on Zoom and forced sports media outlets to learn how to do day-to-day work without a ton of access. And honestly, I don't I don't think that access is coming back even on the other side of the pandemic because the fewer people you have milling around the locker room, the less contact you have between reporters and players that's not supervised or regulators, regulated the the better it is for the team the easier it is the easier it is for the team because the last thing they want is somebody coming in there even if it's a true story reported ethically but still telling stories that the team doesn't want told so the zoom era is much easier for that i think that having those you know those observations that you make when you get to be in practice and listen to what's happening and catch guys on the way back to the locker room you know, that's that's the juicy stuff. That's the stuff that we love. And, and I think if you wind the clock back, you know, decades before we were both born and mm. how how limited that access was, how much the team controlled the message. I mean, as from a from an interest point of view, when every you know, it doesn't matter if you're sports or entertainment or video games. I mean, there's so much fight for attention these days for. Yes. Content is infinite, but time is finite. Exactly, and, and we need, and it's just going to be harder and harder. Um, and I'm not talking about the role of the reporter; I mean, that's not going to change. You guys are always going to do what it takes to tell a story, but that that story that you know goes viral, let's say, or brings attention to the team, positive or negatively, like just getting that information is just going to be harder and harder because you're limited to these very what I would call uh, prescribed conversations, like we're having today. Like we didn't have the chance to you know, walk in together and have small talk. We, we did a little bit of that before we hit record, but we're just not having that unstructured time. Yeah, but it's but this conversation is still a lot more free flowing than uh, 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 a locker room interview or a Zoom session where the the head of PR is just hovering over the uh, <laughs> and leave meeting button, right? And then after. After the allotted time, after three minutes, they're like, okay, no more questions. Uh, Kyle Lowry has to go. And then that's that. Um, And so a lot of, uh, and so then what happens on the other end of the spectrum, right, is if you want access to the big stars, either you're working with them because the stars are content creators now too, or you're working with, um, you know, an outlet that partners with the league or with one of the teams and you be more of an official source and they're compelled to talk to you. Yeah. And you wind up, you do, even if you're not doing it consciously, you do wind up trading objectivity for access. Um, Well, you know, well, if I sign on as, I don't know, LeBron James's official game story writer, then I know I'm trading objectivity for for access. But, um, and that's part of the, and that's another of the hurdles that, kind of that that reporters in the traditional sports news media are up against, right? Is that it's a lot harder to get that access and that the people who have who also have business relationships with these teams or with the individual players uh, are going to get that access. And we know that in Canada, it's super tough because of Rogers and Bell and their control over at least the Toronto market. <laughs> right. We won't speak about them. Not, not, not at the moment anyway. So... Just thinking about that experience as well as we went through it, has the, has the promise of digital and digital first, is, has that really come to fruition the way maybe you were told it was going to be back earlier on in, in your career? In the news industry, you mean? Yeah, in the news industry. Um, for the companies that, that did it right, it has. But being able to do it right, uh, it's sort of like a boxing pay-per-view, right? Because there are two, fi- two kinds of fights that wind up on pay-per-view. And that make money on pay-per-view. One is just like the the big big fights with a huge mass appeal, and they are so um, it's such premium content. And this is not for the quality of the ma- the 
the competition necessarily, but just for the two people involved that you got to put it on pay-per-view because people have, you know, the people are willing to pay, pay a pre- premium for it and you can make your money that way. So that would be like Floyd Mayweather fights, especially when you fought Pacquiao and, and, and Conor McGregor. Um, there's better competition out there in, in the combat sports world, but you're not going to match two personalities and two brands that big very often. And so it's appointment television and people will pay for it. And then at the other end of the spectrum, fights with like really specialized interests do well on, on pay-per-view. So um, I remember a fight I bought on pay-per-view. It was online pay-per-view for, for $5. There's a guy named Brandon Cook from, from Ajax, Ontario, and he was fighting in Kazakhstan a world title fight. It's a fight that it wasn't necessarily going to find its way on the TV here in, in, in Canada, but like to the 10,000 or so people who come to Brandon cook fights when he fights here um, in Southern Ontario, they were all buying it. Right. And so that specialized interest makes money too. And anyone that gets caught in the middle is going to have a hard time selling pay-per-views. So like digital news is the same thing. Um, the Washington Post and the New York Times really committed to uh, not just to their websites, but to their mobile apps and to their iPad apps and making like a really seamless experience. Um, and so that when they, and we talked at the top of this conversation about like which words you use, right? And so when I think about like the New York Times, when they went all in on their iPad and, and iPhone app, the talk wasn't about a paywall. It was just a price, right? Because if you tell a consumer, well, I'm putting up a wall between you and this product, that's how they're going to think of it. Like when I go to Starbucks, the prices are listed. That's it. It's not a paywall. It's just the price of the product because it's not free. And the other thing that the New York Times did that was really smart is that um, selling digital subscriptions also came with uh, a brand new mobile app to enhance your digital experience. So it's not just, hey, pay for this thing that's always been free, in which case the consumer says, why would I do this if it's always been free? Why am I going to start paying now? It's pay for this new digital experience because it's going to enhance the way you can consume our product. Um, And they can afford to do that because they can afford to do it, they do it. And they do it because they can afford to do it. It reinforces itself. Whereas, you know, a lot of other publications are really struggling uh, to make money online or to to manage the transition from being print first revenue wise to digital first revenue wise because print revenue stays declining quickly and digital revenue when it grows grows very slowly and so a lot of times um, if your digital revenue outpaces your print revenue that that's not necessarily a good thing depends on because that depends on entirely on if that has happened because your digital revenue is growing that quickly, or if it happened because your print revenue is shrinking that quickly. And so like when I was at the star, yeah, they just had a really, 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 really hard time managing that next step from being paper first to digital first. Um, and they, they spent a lot of money trying to get it right. I remember. And it's actually, since they've been acquired, some of those dollars have, have come out. I know they've they sold off of uh, one of their assets in the, in the uh what's called digital marketing space so i'm curious what happens to the star uh, and when, when this is all through i guess they're going to be leaner and meaner and hopefully deliver more value to the consumer yeah i am too i, I don't know a ton about the new ownership group and one of uh like i love the star it was it was a great place to spend 18 years but 18 years was enough um and one of the one of the things i really loved about leaving there it's just that I didn't have to sweat every day about the share price, what the share price was going to mean for my future, my family's financial future. Um, yeah, and the star, like they, 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 they had the the paywall in 2012 or 13 ish, and that didn't work. And again, but again, it was one of these situations where they said, "Here's our paywall." When even as a journalist, what 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 you learn very early on, just in terms of structuring your stories, is you want to give the reader a door to open to enter your story. You don't want to give the reader a wall to climb to enter your story. Yeah, here these guys came with, here's our paywall. Yeah, thanks. That's sending the wrong message to the reader. And then there was the, uh, you know, the, the, the tablet app revolution, which is really expensive. And again, like way off target. Um, 
and then there was the 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 other the second drive for digital subscriptions um and again i just uh i never got the impression working there that like the true decision makers were ever really that comfortable transitioning from print to digital first um you know the, the ipad app felt like a a, a bit of a gamble um so I don't know, but again, one of the liberating things about it is that I just don't have to sweat that anymore. No, you're you're free and clear of that now, and you don't have to drive any of the uh, the delivery trucks that now the uh, the vans have turned into to, to deliver newspapers to to residents uh, as as couriers. Uh, you you got to skip all that. Well, yeah, but but that was also part of it, right? Is that you know in, in these newsrooms there's these big scoreboards. Um, with your stories on there and there's this pressure to, to, to get a lot of hits. Right. And managers and middle managers would always tell you if a story was doing well or not doing well, but there was never any clear um, criteria for what doing well actually meant. Cause a lot of stories, like I remember I wrote a story about uh, Dean Blundell getting fired from some radio station. I promise you the story took seven minutes for me to write zero seven, seven minutes. Uh, 420 seconds. It was not very long, but there just happened to be, but it hit the internet at a, at a time when people were talking about it. So it got a bunch of hits. So the bosses are like, Hey, that story did really well, which doesn't mean anything to me because that's not something I can turn into like a role at the star, or like a beat, right? The Dean Blundell gets fired beat. Like there's diminishing returns on that. Cause if I, if I had wrote, written a second story about that, it would not have done well. It was just at that oh, moment. And you were, I mean, let's, let's um, just, let's call it what it is. I mean, the, the star was not dead spin. It was not, Vice. It was not TMZ. I mean, Canadian context. It wasn't wasn't bar down. It could have been bar down, but it chose not to be. Yeah, and just like one off stories like that don't really tell you what's going to um, sustain reader interest and what's going to get people to pay and get people to feel like it's worth my twelve, fifteen, twenty dollars a month or whatever to keep uh, this publication in my life. Um, and so, you know, and I was just one person. I hardly think I was the only person that like dealt with that. But there was always this pressure to one, write stories that people would read, two, write stories that people would e- that would either drive people to subscribe, or three, write stories that subscribers liked because you could, you know, you could uh, uh, delineate those things on, on on the scoreboard: which stories subscribers are clicking on versus which stories non-subscribers are clicking on. Um, and I just found it it started to become an impediment to my desire just to tell the best story possible. Whereas if you're working for a company, a, a corporation, like a, a, a publication that's making money online and knows it's making money online and knows what it's doing to make money online, then you also have the freedom just to pursue the best story possible because you don't have to depend on each single story to, to uh, generate eight subscriptions or whatever it is. Well, let's let's talk about one of those stories now. So, you know, long before uh, Black Lives Matter and then the events of last of 2020, you, know, you were already a leading voice for, for racism in sports. Now, we know, and I watched your TED talk. You know, a lot of that, in the early days anyway, was on the backs of experiences that you had, which were you know, horrible experiences that you should have never had. Taking that you've been you've been talking about this subject for such a long time, you know, it's part of it's part of your persona and and who readers and the public expect, you know, Morgan, Morgan Campbell to write about. What's your opinion about in the last whatever six seven months about how sports media outlets have covered players and league responses uh, to, to the, the, what's going on in society? Um. Well, I think like. You know, outlets that are in the that are in the twenty four seven quick hit, quick reaction rat race aren't really equipped to cover something as profound and complex as race relations. Uh, so they do what they can, and you know, the easy thing is just to try to keep track of who's kneeling before the who's kneeling in the anthem before the game and who's not. And if you kneel, you ask the guy why he knelt. If you didn't kneel, you ask the guy why he didn't kneel. And you make a story out of it either way. Um, and so, I don't know, I've, 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 I found a lot of that coverage. Um, and even going back to the Colin Kaepernick days, and 
the other easy thing for people to do is just, uh, especially if the person was in a sport without a ton of black people, just find a black guy, stick a mic in his face. What do you think of Kaepernick? Find a black guy, stick a mic in his face. Why'd you kneel for the anthem? And then whatever, whatever the answer is, you write, put in the lead and you have a story and you're going to, going to get a lot of clicks, right? Because during, when we're in one of these cycles, when, when race relations is a hot topic and the intersection of sports and race is a hot topic, even people that don't necessarily cover those, that intersection, uh, know that there's a lot of, uh, readership, a lot of, and if you're in one of these places that's counting clicks, a lot of clicks and stories about that. If you get the right headline in the lead and it's search engine optimized, you're, you're off to the races. Uh, and so, I mean, it's an easy thing to do, but it doesn't necessarily make the reader any smarter. Um, but the thing is stories that are, that are going to make readers going to, that are going to help the re- readers understand what they're seeing and help readers understand like, the bigger, the broader racial and socio socioeconomic game behind the game they're watching. Those stories don't turn around in an hour and they shouldn't have to like those. That's more detailed work. Sometimes they, sometimes the best way to tell those stories is via a column. Sometimes it's a reported piece that, but it takes some work and you got to talk to stakeholders and talk to experts. Um, and that's what I, those are the stories I like to see as opposed to, uh, this guy, this guy raised his fist during the anthem. Um, why'd you do it? This guy raised the, his fist during the anthem is just like John Carlos. You know, he's not just like John Carlos because John Carlos is John Carlos. And the other thing about the the, the pregame demonstrations now is that they're they're safe. They're endorsed by the leagues. So guys doing it now. This is no disrespect to Matt Dumba. Matt, Matt Dumba's not Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick did what he did, knowing that he was going to court a bunch of backlash. Whereas Matt. Dumba, like the league literally handed him a microphone and said, Matt Dumba, go speak. Remind our fans of Black Lives Matter. So they're, they're two very different things. Um, but I would like to see, like to the extent that I can, I make a distinction between the acts for people that are consuming whatever I'm writing. I just wish there was a little bit more of that because I don't want that. It's a very important distinction. I don't want to get lost, but it's easy to get lost just because, um, again, like the appetite for these stories and stories overall is just bottomless. And like reporters are under a lot of pressure just to write something as quickly as possible and get it out there. Is there anyone that you look to for guidance on, on w- which stories to, to cover uh, in this, uh, in, in this area of your, you know, your life, your passion, your interest, your, your reach that you already have? Um, I don't know if guidance is the word. Like I just, uh, it depends on who I'm writing for. It depends on what the, the, the format or the outlet is. And also for me, like I, I have my topics that interest me. Um, and this is the other thing about like not being at a daily newspaper anymore. Like I'm, I'm, I'm freed from thinking I have to have a beat. And I'm also free from like worrying about what the immediate readership is going to be every time I sit down and think about what I want to write about. Um, so I just literally write about what interests me and what, what aspect of the big stories interests me. And so, uh, you know, the last thing I wrote for CBC, CBC sports was uh, about Chuba Hubbard, the running back from Edmonton who's playing at Oklahoma state and why he, opted out of the final two games of his college career to get ready for the, the, the NFL draft. And so in some ways it might seem counterintuitive if these bowl games are like a big platform to showcase yourself for the NFL, but you look at it from Chuba Hubbard's perspective, no matter how well you play in these games, you're not getting paid, but your coach gets paid uh, to coach these games and your coach gets bonuses to qualify for these games. And the other thing about the NFL draft is like they put so much emphasis on the pre-draft workouts at the combine or afterward that the longer you play as a collegian, the shorter, the less time you have to prepare for these pre-draft workouts. So you go to these NFL scouts, you've had a great, I think Oklahoma State was going to play in the Cheez-It Bowl, right? You had a great Cheez-It Bowl, Right. But let's say you pulled your hamstring in the Cheez-It Bowl on January, on December 29th. So you can't start real training until 
you know, two or three weeks later. And then in March, they, they, they put you on the stopwatch and you run four or five and they say, Chuba Hubbard, you're slower than I thought you'd be. I thought you were fast. But Chuba Hubbard was only at this bowl game trying to please you, trying to show you that he could play running back. So it's a lot smarter for him to say, hey, look, I've got my film from last year when I was healthy. You guys know what I can do. Let me take these three or four weeks, get healthy, get fit, run four, three, seven. And now I'm getting drafted in the second round instead of the fourth or fifth. Um, so stuff like that. But I don't like story like that or a column like that. I don't necessarily have to like consult with anyone. Um, I'm just always kind of consuming the news and, and, and although not as 24 seven as I used to, thankfully, um, and just, you know, keeping an eye out for the, for the topics that interest me. And that, that freedom, I'm going to call it to, uh, kind of make, make your own decisions, pace yourself in terms of what, what you want to cover and when is that CBC provides that for you? Is there, is there anything more, more to it? I, uh, I know, I know a lot of the folks you work with and work around at the CBC. I know they're all good, very experienced sports and media people from a whole plethora of backgrounds that have now found their way to the CBC, yourself included. Like, what, what's that culture like? So around this time last year, it was like maybe a week before Christmas when I left the star, you know, when a journalist leaves their job, you have to go on Twitter and make a big thread about you leaving your job and how you loved your job and you're on to better things and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was like in the middle of that thread and uh, I got like in the middle of that thread, I got, I got a bunch of DMs, but one was from uh, Chris Wilson and then one was from uh, the head of marketing at Penguin Random House. And each of them were like, what do you want to do? <laughs> and so the head of publishing, the head of marketing at public Penguin Random House, I forgot that I knew him and because and his Twitter avatar is not a picture of him. So by the time I got downtown to meet him and I saw his face, I was like, oh, yeah, we used to work out at the same gym. So I was talking to him about uh, a book I wanted to write. He's like, can you finish it? Can you do? Can you get a proposal done in a month? I was like, sure. So I did the proposal. And at the same time, CBC is talking to me about, uh, hey, we want to bring you on as like, because we don't have like contributors. We want to bring you on as like a, a, our first contributor, but as a senior contributor so that people know that like you're here for a reason. You're here to do like good work. You're not just a... a, a you know, somebody were summoning to plug a gap. Um, so basically the way those two jobs interact, yeah, jobs, they don't, it doesn't feel like work, but you know. you know. So the CBC- That's what makes it great. I know. So the CBC, I write for them twice a month and then more if they need it. And then I podcast for them maybe three times a month. Like we just started this video podcast called Bring It In. And so- when we get into our full rhythm, it'll probably be like we record on Mondays. So when we get into our full rhythm, it'll probably be most Mondays, but not necessarily every Monday. Um, so in between all that, yeah, I can I have time to write because like the CBC workdays are half a Sunday, half a Monday, and then every other Tuesday. So in all the other rest of the week, now that my schedule's about to uh, calm down a little bit is working on the manuscript. So all those things overlap. So I do take guidance because sometimes Ryan Johnson has a, a specific thing he wants my opinion on. But um, even there, like he doesn't tell me what to write. He's just curious what I think. Oh, he's a great guy. I've had the chance to get to know him really well over over my career and to follow his his movements in, in and out of sports. And uh, you got I got big admirers from um on my side of what 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 they're doing and i look I, hopefully they get to do the olympics this summer i guess you'll be a big part of that as well i hope so and yeah i mean it looks like the olympics is going to happen either way it's just a question of uh are they going to have spectators i personally am not a big fan of spectators in the middle of a pandemic i think the 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 most optimistic vision of what's going to happen says that there's that there's enough vaccine uptake that it's safe to have spectators, but like, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't plan for the best case scenario. I'd plan for the worst case scenario. And if the best case scenario presents itself, then it's a bonus. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, ho- hopefully we see that, that happen. I, I think that uh, a lot of those athletes, the amateur athletes, not these pros who are, who, you know, having reduced salaries, but are still getting paid quite well. Those, those athletes we talked about sponsorship and endorsements earlier, all that's riding on the biggest stage. Yeah, well, but honestly, the truth is for amateur athletes, you make your money 
the year leading up to the Olympics. Because about three weeks after the Olympics, over here in North America, we've forgotten about you. So the, the best thing to be is Andre de Grasse, right? Who wins a bronze medal, wins a couple of bronze medals in 2015, the year before the Olympics. And then can say to the sponsors, hey, pay me because the spotlight's going to be on me for the next 12 months. Instead of being the guy that wins at the Olympics and then going to the sponsors and saying, hey, pay me. And the sponsor says, that's great. But like three weeks from now, when everyone's paying, paying attention to hockey again and no one remembers Olympic wrestling, when, how are we going to get our money back? Um, so, and, and that is part of, like, like even DeGrasse is an example, right? Like he had the hamstring tear in 2017, kind of a, a rebuilding year in 2018. And then 2019, he comes back and wins another medal at the world championships. And so he was in position in a normal year uh, to have a huge marketing year in 20, in 2020 into 2021. But, you know, you have this year and everyone presses pause on what they're doing. Uh, luckily for him, like, he is one of a very few really big track and field stars here in Canada. Like, for an American, it's different just because there are so many people that are good at that sport. And that and the fact that that sport's kind of a fringe sport in the U.S., it's hard for any one of them uh, to stand out. Like, the American equivalent of Andre DeGrasse is not a big superstar, right? Like, Andre DeGrasse is much bigger here than Noah Lyles is in the U.S. But that is the that's the thing that kind of broke the momentum for a lot of olympic sport athletes is that they didn't have the year to build up um and 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 capitalize on yeah, andre degrasse by comparison yeah he's just a stud i mean he's him and his agent have done a great job being Absolutely. able to take the time even during injury and, and get him uh, a lot of sponsorship deals. absolutely and so the, the person that would have like the next andre degrasse might be in a different sport but it's just we wouldn't know who they are heading into this Olympics because so many sports were on pause for so long, which is a shame. I'm going to switch gears as we, uh, we've been talking for a long time today, which is great. You got, I, I'm sure we can talk for hours, but uh, the audience, you know, <laughs> we know that they, uh, they have their limits. So I got a couple more things for you that uh, I, I think are trendy. If I, I don't, if we can be trendy for a minute. So are you familiar from your days going to school in Chicago? Are you familiar with Teddy Greenstein? Yeah, I know the name. He's, is he still with the Tribune? Yeah, so Tribune. Yeah, he would have covered the Big Ten. So back, yeah, yeah well, over his Yeah, well, he wouldn't have interviewed me because I was just, I was, <laughs> he would have interviewed some of my teammates. Some of my teammates probably know him very well. Oh, if we wanted to talk back, you, you, you would have had a, a, a podcast from the bench. I mean, the, we could rewrite that book later. So so Teddy has left the Tribune, and he's he's made the jump into, into sports books and for, for points bet. And I, I was, I'm, I'm not assuming you, you knew that, but that concept of this movement, you know, first from print then to TV uh, or print into now sports books and the, and the change in, in where that sports sports fan is going. And this is we're just at the beginning of this. Let's face it here in North America. Mm. But do you and your your friends, your former colleagues, the sports writers, maybe some of the folks who moved over to the athletic that you're still in touch with? Like, do you talk about the impact that sports betting is going to have on, on your careers and, and how marketable your skills are going forward. I personally have not had those conversations. I think every, everybody in, in traditional print media, sports or not sports, I think has some type of plan B, like you have to, because you can't get caught flat footed because like so many people's publications at any moment could decide they're laying off for buying out or selling themselves to a private equity firm that's going to come lay everybody off. Um, so, um, so even, you know, my last two or three years at the star, I was thinking of plan B and what I'm doing now is a big part of it. Uh, but in terms of sports gambling, I, I, you know, I see people like Darren Ravel, who was never like a, a, a pure journalist necessarily, but he was a guy that another Northwestern guy, he was a couple years behind me, um, you know, who built this big brand as as the sports business expert. And now he's working for a gambling site. Um, and so that's a that's a good place to reach a certain type of fan, right? Depending a, a fan that wants a certain type of information. So there are sports fans that want to know uh, like where Pascal Siakam is coming from, like big picture. What's it like to come from 
to go from Cameroon to New Mexico to Toronto. Uh, what's it like to to go from a, a rookie who uh, has four pairs of Nike KD 11s that he tries to stretch throughout the course of a whole year to a guy who now, I don't know if he has a signature shoe, but he's on his way there, right? So there's fans that want to know about that. Um, but the people that read the sports bookie websites, they could care less about Pascal Siakam's personality. They just want to know what he's going to do for their fantasy team and uh, whether or not he's injured and how that affects the, the, the um, point spread. And so there's a market for that. And if that market is going to keep writers employed, uh, then I'm happy for it. Uh, like, is that for me? No. Um, and the other thing is like, I don't want the kind I don't want the pressure that comes with uh, writing a story that says uh, Errol Spence is going to beat Terrence Crawford in the welterweight title unification match. Here's why I bet your money on Errol Spence. And then Crawford messes around and wins. And all these readers are mad at me for having recommended that. So writing for a gambling site doesn't necessarily interest me. Yeah. But if you would have got a, you know, if you would have got a piece of the of, of the bets, then no, that's another story. <laughs> well, but it is interesting, like how the how the people move from industry to industry, right? So, the writers wind up at the gambling sites, and then the gamblers often wind up working for teams as quantitative analysts, right? But then also sometimes writers wind up working for teams, and and not even just in the media relations department because that's pretty common. Like the head of Raptors PR is. Jennifer Quinn, who was a former sports editor at the Star, but she was a, she was a reporter before that. Um, the head of Blue Jays media relations is Richard Griffin, who was longtime baseball columnist at the Star. But then also, um, what's his name? Lee Jenkins, who wrote for Sports Illustrated for a long time, and then he got a gig with the um, LA Clippers, right? And he's kind of the other end of the spectrum. He's like the qualitative analyst. He goes and he interviews these prospects and tries to figure out what makes them tick. And so when you're in the industry and like in the day-to-day grind of, of, of banging out stories uh, to satisfy, you know, to fill this bottomless news hole, it is difficult to think of how your skills might translate to another industry. But again, here go the gambling guys saying, hey, we love sports writers because you know about sports. Come on over. And you can make our numbers, you can present all our numbers in a way that's a little bit more interesting. Or like I said, the, the Clippers hired a, a, a feature writer, right? Just to go research people and prepare these reports on what makes these guys tick, these draft prospects and whoever. We're gonna we're gonna see how this all plays out over the next little while once uh, there's some there's some regulatory hurdles in Canada that are close to being cleared. And uh, we're all very curious how that changes the landscape. So Morgan, every time we uh, record one of these uh, Backstage Project podcast. We we asked the uh, we asked the guests a few standard questions. So I want to I want to make sure we got a chance to do that. Let's do it. Um, I did not prep you for this. No 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 no. These might be these might be layups, if you will. Uh, so uh, what's uh, what's the most uh, memorable moment that uh, stands out in in your career? Oh geez, I don't know if I have one. Um... <laughs> Uh, let me think. These are really hard questions to answer, but then like we as journalists ask people this all the time and we'll ask a a basketball player after a game. Hey man, what's the best play you ever made? Yeah. The guy's like, I've been playing basketball since I was four years old. I don't know the best play I've ever made. (laughs) That's the fun part about, uh, about Andrew and I doing this. Most memorable moment in my sports journalism career. Um, I'll pick out a memorable moment because I don't have, I don't know that one is more memorable than the other. Uh, have you had Sean Fitzgerald from The Athletic no, on this not show? Not yet, not yet. You're, you're our first bonafide sports writer. Okay, perfect. We should have Sean on. He has a, he has a really good book called uh, Before the Lights Go Out, where he did like a year in the life of the Peterborough Peets and kind of told the story of the junior hockey team, but against the backdrop of uh, hockey's overall kind of decline and prominence in Canada because because it's so expensive. And looking at like the sustainability of the sport in this country. So 2007, the first ever Toronto FC game uh, in Carson, California at the old Home Depot Center, which is now I think the Dignity Health Center. Uh, and they're playing Chivas USA. So basically, um, we're on the West Coast. You know, our papers are on the East Coast. 
we have these deadlines. We have to file this stuff, file all this stuff way before game time because three hours behind. But Sean also had this idea to go to USC uh, and watch their spring football game. And so <laughs> I got out of bed in the hotel and I met Sean uh, at the at the stadium at the at the Coliseum, like the, where USC plays its home games, where they had the the uh, Olympics. And we're sitting there and watching the game, but Sean didn't have a deadline before the game, but I did. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, I probably should have written this story two, two hours ago, but I want to see this game. So Sean and I are here with, just at the game, watching the game, it's going on. And Sean's like, hey, uh, do you have a deadline? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what are you doing here? I was like, I want to see the game. And so <laughs> we watched the spring game and then... I'm watching the clock. I got one eye on the clock, one eye on the highway, and I speed to uh, – I'm surprised I didn't get pulled over for speeding. Uh, and I'm surprised I was able to speed given L.A. traffic. And I screeched into the parking lot and after having – because I was determined to watch USC's spring game. And I sprinted to the press box, and I banged out the story on Toronto FC's first game and hit send right before, and I hit my deadline. And Sean's looking at me. He's like, you are a lunatic. The, the phrase he – used was you must have some brass balls to do this and I said hey you think so but I, d- I want to see the game and so that's something that stands out because it, because like it was such an adrenaline rush doing that but also because like that era of sports journalism I don't know if it, 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 it if it exists anymore if it's going to survive this like where we're both working for publications that can afford to go send us to something like that like you hardly have those moments anymore uh, it, it speaks to just even at that part of your career, you were in the first, whatever it was, five, 10 years of your career. You you knew what you were capable of. You knew how much time you needed to do it. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to make a life choice here, not a work choice. Yeah, exactly. I'm also a procrastinator. That's part you of it. Are, you've been in the wrong industry to be a procrastinator, my friend. Um, looking at other people who... No, this is the right industry to be a procrastinator because when the when the deadlines get closer, you uh, it brings the best out of you. Uh, the, the survivors like you. Exactly. <laughs> Think about about people who who want to become sports writers, want to become journalists. What and, and I'm I'm sure you've done a great job over your career being available to those kinds of people. That's kind of how you and I met originally. Mm. Uh, what advice What advice do you have to that that next generation of people who are in? I mean, besides, don't become a journalist. <laughs> I mean, if you must become a journalist, uh, I always tell people this: there are several ways to get ahead, right? Um, you can get ahead by being really good at your job and like cultivating a, a diverse set of skills. You can also get ahead just by uh, identifying power and cozying up to power and <laughs> letting powerful people pave your way, whether or not you're any good. I've seen people get to the top both ways. And uh, honestly, it takes like some some honesty and some self-awareness to figure out what you're better at. Uh, so like for me... Um, I was never good at the politics, uh, but I'm finally at the point in my career now where it's not to say the politics don't matter, um, because like, yeah, I do stuff for CBC, I do stuff for the New York Times, um, and I'm in like direct contact with the bosses of those sports departments and a lot of other people aren't, um, so in that sense, I'm connected to the powerful people, but it's the fact that like uh, it was my work that caught their interests and that prompted them to help cultivate a relationship with me. So like you can, but what matters is you have the good relationship with the people who make the decisions. Um, and there are a lot of ways to get there. I took kind of I took a slower path, but that's where I am. So whether it's your work and your work ethic and your versatility that uh, help foster a strong relationship with the decision makers, or whether it's your ability just to hang out in the bar with them after work. Like, I'm not going to tell you don't do that because there are people who make whole careers out of that. So if that's your strength. You got to put in the time. I mean, you can't, you got to deliver on the product. You got to put in your time. You got to have a reputation. Well, no, well, yeah, you got to deliver on the product if you want to be good, but if you just want to be successful and get promoted, you can be good or not good if you, if you 
if you if you have the right relationship with the right person, like it, it depends on how honest you are and what your actual goals are, right? If your goal is just to get the job or be good at the job, you can get the job. People get promoted without being any good, but it's uh, maybe it makes them happy. But like, if you're asking, so that's that's for people. That's like the the other side of the coin advice that I do tell people because it, I don't know that we are honest enough with young people in this industry about how political it is and how much relationships matter and how, but often those relationships don't turn on whether or not you're actually good at your job. And we should be more honest with people about that. But at the same time, now, if you want to be like good at the job, if you want to master the craft, that's something different. But that's a different question from do I want to rise in my career? In the same way that a lot of really good boxers put in the time to master the craft but Conor McGregor comes in and makes $30 million in his one one and only boxing match. Why? Because he had a big name. He had an audience and he knew who to call to make that fight happen. So it just depends on what your goals are. But like, can Conor McGregor beat your Dennis Ugas in a boxing match at welterweight? No, he can't. But which of these guys is more famous? It just depends on what your goal is. It's good advice. We've heard kind of comparable advice from lots of people that, that we've had on. I think it's that the concept of like, you're all, you're always training, you're always practicing and you got to mm-hmm. show up, you got to show up when it's game time and, <laughs> and it's a business. I mean, th- you've, we've talked about yeah. it throughout, like this is whether it's about page views or subscriptions or bottom line or whatever travel costs. I mean, all these things we touched on today, it's, there's a lot of pressures on the media business and, and the people who, who deliver the content, which fuel all of this, Sometimes are their importance is just taken for granted because someone's yes. count, counting the numbers yeah. and, and they don't like how they add up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, and I think publications take that approach like to their detriment. Um, and it's funny because you'll hear sports writers, especially like, yeah, and you'll hear sports business people make that same argument, right? That uh, the NCAA players themselves aren't valuable as the the brand name is the duke brand name is valuable kentucky brand name is valuable alabama brand name is valuable but those brand names are only valuable to the extent that they can recruit and develop top flight players so the players are still valuable and so in in the same uh dynamic is at work to a lesser extent but for sure in in the news business um you know the new york times makes money because it's everywhere but the new york times also recruits and does its best to retain top flight journalists and if they just threw together a collection of people who had you know been fired for incompetence from every every place else they worked and then still tried to put out this product and charge thirty dollars a month for it uh i don't know how long that 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 model would last them so um yeah like we as writers are not as high profile as the people we cover and there are a lot more of us than there are you know players on the Toronto Raptors, but that model still does apply if you want to be successful and if your um, publication wants to be successful. You do have to either find talent or develop it or some of both. And then you got to put people in position to do the best they can and put people in position to succeed. If you're not doing that, then you're asking to fail. And that's whether you're a basketball team if I'm a basketball team who decides Sergi Baca has to be a point guard, I'm going to fail. And I don't tell Sergi Baca you got to earn, you got to play point guard for three years to earn the right to play uh, spot up shooting power forward. You know, do that. Um, Work. <laughs> exactly. So, that, yeah, so all these businesses are similar in that respect for sure. Listen, Morgan, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate you. Uh sharing and telling your story and uh we look forward to following your your transition to becoming a big time tv personality <laughs> we'll see i look forward to becoming one or <laughs> something we'll see listen i when i left the star a year ago i wouldn't have thought i was on the path to becoming like a full-time tv personality and i and um this is not the same on that path right now but just after a few weeks of recording bring it in like I first envisioned it as more of a podcast, but very quickly it's become more of a TV show. And, and the more we do it, the more it uh, kind of coalesces that way. And I'm excited about uh, what we can do. 
Well, I've enjoyed what I've seen, and I continue to I continue to watch and see more. And I look forward to you uh, you taking over. Uh, I don't know the seven o'clock hour every day, Monday to Friday. Something like that on the main network. As long as it's a seven o'clock hour every single day, and I can build my schedule around the rest of it. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.